Right, so I'm going to talk um, about the, the problem of introspection, which I think all modern people struggle with to some degree or other. For me, it's quite a contagious modern disease, and one that we often find hard to see ourselves in, the introspective condition, because it's actually so familiar to the way we, we are. And it's often not until the, the serious effects and consequences of introspection show themselves that we become aware, of, man, I am so introspective. And uh, you, you'll see, as I reflect on the subject here, that I think introspection is deadly. Um, so I want to start simply by asking what is introspection? Um, poor things, you come for a lunch hour and you're going to get a bit of a philosophical thing going on here and then we'll get to the psychological but uh, to answer the question what is introspection we need to do some basic anthropology which is what what does it mean to be a human being focus on that and I want to think about the the heart um, that's the way the Hebrews talked about the inner life of the human being um, what is the human heart? How does it work? And for me, there are three functions. I'm sure there's more, but three key functions of the inner life of every human. And each of these three functions play a, a, a very important role in connecting us to reality. Because here we are, subjects, and we're contextualized in, a, in reality. And how do we make a connection with reality? And these three functions are key to make, helping us make these connections. And they're all, they all have what I call outer directedness. They, they help us focus outward, um, in the outward um, sense. And these three functions are thinking, being, and doing. These are utterly critical for how we connect with reality. So in our relationship to reality, first of all, it's critical how we think about it. The way we think about the world around us is actually going to have a huge impact on how we engage with it. So if you're um, in Athens and you see the big mountain called Olympus, um, just beyond the, the perimeter of the city there, if you think in a very ancient way of this big hunk of rock, you'll, you'll say, uh, this is a home for the gods. That's what you'll think about that piece of reality. If you're a modern, you'll say it's just a big chunk of rock. And actually, it's not that impressive. Beside Everest, it's nothing. Um, and so you'll engage with it depending on how you, you think about it. Um, the second, so that's about thinking. The second is the, the critical issue of how we participate reality. Uh, because thinking is still cut off from the real engagement first-hand engagement with reality. Participation is how we share with it, how we connect with it. Um, it's the experience of reality. And for me, this takes place primarily through the imagination. And uh, I, I'm, I don't have time to go into depth on this one. We might pick it up in the discussion. But the imagination has this wonderful ability to form mental images or symbols and it's actually through the symbol that we have the first-hand experience of reality. So a healthy imagination is so important to our engagement with reality. So it's by mean, means of symbols, the mental images, um, through the imagination, that we make the deep connection with reality. Our symbolic life is so important for our engagement with reality. So it's how we think about it, how we participate it through the imagination. And then thirdly, it's how we respond to it. And this brings in the human will, the doing aspect. We engage with reality. It might be a person we're talking to or a paper or a book in front of us. And we have to respond to it through the will. We've got to make choices. We've got to engage, with, engage in it through the will. And this is the doing part with respect to, to reality. Responses prompted by the will. So, so much more could be said there. But these three functions, mind, imagination, and will, are absolutely critical in our engagement with reality. These things function, functioning in a healthy way. And it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, often the Bible is appealing to all three of these human inner life functions. So in Matthew 13, if you look at the um, parable of the sower that Jesus tells, first of all, it's a story, so it's appealing to imagination. Um, but he's addressing rationality. The whole point is to bring us to right thinking. 
And at the end, he appeals directly to the will. What are you going to do about this? He was ears to hear. Let him hear and get on and make the right choice with respect to what I've been telling you. So you, all, you see in the Bible that it's appealing to all three of these inner life functions. Now, all three functions have quite different operations. They function quite differently from each other. And the point is, in terms of how God designed it, is that they're meant to be integrated, all working in a healthy way, and integrated in such a way as that they enable us to reach out and touch reality in a meaningful way. Now, I, I have to do all that to answer the question, what is introspection? Because introspection for me is what happens when rationality, the way we think, no longer has outer directedness. Because they're meant, all three functions, to have this outer directedness connecting us to reality. Suddenly, rationality no longer has outer directedness and it, it's, it turns inwards. Um, and it's the same with the will. Suddenly, the will becomes much more inner focused than it is outer focused. And when that happens, when that inward turn takes place, we become introspective. And when that happens, we become locked inside of ourselves. And when we become locked inside of ourselves, it actually crushes the power to be, the power of being, which actually comes through the imagination. Um, C.S. Lewis says that we become ourselves as we move beyond ourselves. And that's actually key to the Christian understanding of what it is to be human. We are the image of God, and an image, a representation, is nothing except in relationship turn to God, whose ultimate reality, we're a reflection of Him, that we become ourselves, we become real. That's where the power to be is, as we move outward. Um, when thinking and doing have this inward turn, it crushes this power to reach out, the power to be. And that is catastrophic in terms of a healthy, functioning um, inner life. So what happens at this point is that the inner life becomes a transaction of thinking over being and doing over being. And that's introspection. Thinking over being and doing over being. Now I want to just look at these two movements to see what's happening. First of all, thinking over being. Um, in the 19th century, there was a very strange Lutheran-Danish pastor called Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard depends how you want to pronounce it. And uh, he, some people call him the father of existentialism, which was a branch of philosophy which was very big um, in the 20th century. And Kierkegaard often used to lament that the modern had forgotten how to exist. We could only think and talk about being rather than actually participating it. And in a sense, even back then, he was reflecting the introspective condi um, condition that we substitute for reality merely our ideas about reality. And the focus is on the thought now, how we think about reality, rather than actually really participating the real. Now, my way of um, illustrating this is, is crude and perhaps is offensive to some. I apologize for that. But my, I guess if I was asked for a one-line definition of introspection, I would say it's mental masturbation. That's what introspection is, mental masturbation. When God um, created us as sexual beings, his intention was that our experience of the act of sex is with another person. It has this outer directedness. And masturbation is when you don't participate anything outside of yourself. It's very inner directed. There's no connection with a real world. You're in a fantasy world. And that really is what introspection is. Mental masturbation where thinking takes place apart from any real engagement and participation with reality. Because God created us to be thinking and being at the same time. If these things are outer-directed, as you think about reality, you deeply engage with it. Um, they're to complement each other. But when thinking turns inward, it actually... And being is always connected to reality. We no longer participate anything outside of ourselves. 
And as I said, it's only when we go beyond ourselves that we become ourselves. It's a fundamental um, truth about ourselves, which I think we have to grasp. Lewis is always, C.S. Lewis is always pointing this out. We become ourselves as we move beyond ourselves. Now, when um, thinking turns inward, um, and we enter this introspective condition, the thinking dimension soon becomes what I call hyper-rational. And what we do is start compulsively over-intellectualizing everything. Everything becomes over-intellectualized. And the more we lose the connection with the real beyond ourselves, the deeper the hyper-analysis. Some people call, uh, talked about the paralysis of analysis. You know, the sort of people, person who can think forever. And it might not just be about philosophy. It might be thinking forever about whether I should ask her out or ask him out and get caught in the cycle of thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. And the more you think about it, the more you just get crushed and, and paralyzed in terms of making a response um, to this person that you should or shouldn't ask out. Um, and that's what happens with introspection. The, the thinking just becomes more and more intense. And it's like a tumble dryer. It just keep, keeps going round and round and round. And the more this happens, the more we just get sucked inside of ourselves. And when that happens, we start practicing the presence of self. We just become so self-conscious, so aware of ourselves to the negation of any awareness of, of that which is outside of us. So we're just caught up in our own thoughts and we don't have this capacity to reach beyond ourselves. We're just caught in a cycle of compulsive thought. Um, I don't know if you guys have engaged much with um, modernism, postmodernism, and the difference in those conditions. And uh, many will say that the postmodernist is irrational. Um, but I think we have to be careful in the way we think about that, because I think post modernity is very hyper-rational. It's always over-intellectualizing everything. Thinking, thinking, thinking. And I think that philosophical trend is true psychologically for so many moderns. Compulsively over-intellectualizing everything. So that's thinking over being, the one aspect of introspection. The second dimension is doing over being. And here's a mode of existence where we're, we're always in activity. Doing, doing, doing. And again, this constant activity is at the expense of being. Because if we're just constantly caught up, up in activity, we don't have a first-hand experience of reality. And I think it's true of so many moderns again. We're, we can never sit still and hear the birds sing or whatever. Listen, really listen to a piece of music. We always have to be active and, and busy. And actually, this mode of existence is always thinking about the next thing. You can't enjoy what's before you right now. You're always having to think about the next thing that you have to do. So you're, again, disengaged from reality. Because our engagement with reality is always a present phenomenon. We can't exist in the future. We can't exist in the past. All we have is the presence. That's how, where we engage with reality. But this kind of doing over being is all about thinking of the next thing I have to do. So you never enjoy the gift of the present moment. Um, and it, it, it's part of the introspective con con condition, rushing around, engage in all sorts of activity, but no real first-hand experience of life. I think this is what traveling, modern traveling, has become for, for so many. Um, the, the Americans were masters of it, sort of 30-day travel pass through Europe. You know, I went through Paris in a day. I did Paris, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But you can't have a first-hand experience of Paris in a day. Usually absolutely shattered because you're rushing all over the place. And you're, you're really not there. Um, I remember a few years ago being in the Rijk Museum in Amsterdam. And my wife and I were walking through it. And there just happened to be this American woman who sort of followed us um, through. Sometimes she was ahead of us, sometimes behind her. She had one of these video cameras. And she, she was looking through this video camera the whole time, taking you know, the, 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 the live footage of these masterpieces. And if she looked up once, I didn't see it. So standing there in front of Rembrandt like this, never once did she go, 
she's looking through here. She didn't once have a first-hand experience of, of Rembrandt. It was mediated through this wretched machine. I just wanted to scream at her and say, woman, when's the next time you're going to get to come back to Amsterdam to see these great masterpieces? That's a Rembrandt collection. She didn't look at them through her little machine. That, in a sense, is often how we're experiencing it secondhand rather than firsthand. And uh, this, this, can, this happens if we get caught up in a, a certain type of activism, which I think is, is very prevalent in our, our modern experience. So much rushing around, but no time to just be. In fact, our busyness annihilates our ability just to be. And uh, that loss is painful for us. And often the way we fill the emptiness we feel is to become even more busy. Um, and we know this is our state, and this is something that I easily fall into. I, I'm terrible in the first few days of a holiday, sort of antsy. My wife will say I'm a bit hyperactive. Sort of, oh, what do I do now? Just calm down. Just enjoy the beach. Just, just sit there. No, you don't have to read or do this, do that. And it's, it's because I've, I've got into this condition, doing over, over being. So. Um, these are the two aspects of introspection. Thinking over being this compulsive, over-intellectualizing everything. Thought, 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 and the world just goes by us. And the other is just do, do, do. And again, the world goes by us in terms of first-hand experience of reality. So that's my basic um, understanding of what introspection is. What I want to ask now is what does introspection do to us? This, this way of, 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 of being, if I can call it that, being in the introspective way, what does it do as human beings? What's the impact? And there are four things I want to mention briefly here. The first for me is that it actually empties us out. Um, and I, I think for all the advantages of the modern world, and I'm glad I live in the 21st century, no interest in going back to the 12th, 13th. It's where a lot of my historical interest is. Sometimes I've been tempted. 21st century for me rocks because I have a little computer in my hand here and I'm wired up. I, oh, this, stuff's, this stuff's good. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the 21st century. But I would say for all the advantages, we are we're pretty empty, we moderns. And actually experience our own inner life is, is quite empty. Blaise Pascal, who wrote... Um, wonderful apologetic work, work called the Ponzes. He started the work by saying, man, he wasn't very politically correct back there in the 16th century, man is happy with God, he's unhappy without him. And I, I'm not so sure the happiness thing kind of works today. Um, happiness, you know, clown, nose, big smile. Um, I, I, would, I would, if, if uh, Pascal was around today, I imagine he might have said empty. The human being is empty without God, but the possibility of fullness with God. And I think full empty is perhaps the most powerful descriptive language in terms of describing inner life. And I think all of us know something of the, of the struggle with emptiness. And emptiness for me is, is one of the byproducts of the introspective condition. And that's because we're not participating in reality. We're not, we don't have this outer directedness, which is so important for a healthy humanity. So the more cut off we are from reality, the more we're turning inward, the more we're just emptying ourselves out. Um, a little bit like Bilbo, 60 years of wearing the, the ring, and he felt like a little bit of butter spread over a big piece of bread. <coughs> um, and that's what, that's what introspection does to us. It leads to emptiness and thinness. And actually, the, the more thin we feel in our inner lives, the darker we feel. In the Bible, um, light is connected to the idea of glory. And glory in the Hebrew mind was an idea that had weightiness under, behind it. Something which is glorious is weighty, it's full. And, and so the idea of light there. Darkness is actually an empty condition. I don't know if you guys have, have read uh, C.S. Lewis's great divorce, but when he describes, uh, there's a little, well, it's mainly about heaven, but a little description of hell and the darkness and the thinness. Every day you're a thousand miles removed from your, 
nearest neighbor and you become thinner and thinner. So dark, a light, glory, darkness, um, thinness and emptiness. And I think introspection leads to a real kind of inner darkness that's experienced as, as emptiness. And that's why for people who are very introspective, darkness is often the most real thing about them. And they identify deeply with their inner darkness. It's the most real thing about me, my experience of darkness. And they connect with it. And you put two or three introspect, deeply introspective people together, that's actually the focus. The focus is on the darkness, the emptiness they all feel. It's what pulls them together. And I, I actually really detest introspection because I'm quite introspective myself. I'm, I'm drawn in that direction temperamentally. And uh, for me, it's almost a metaphor of, of hell. It's, 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 it's such a horrid, horrid condition to be locked into. Cut off from reality, stuck inside of myself. Um, and because we can only know ourselves by going beyond ourselves, the more I get stuck inside myself, it doesn't lead to greater self-knowledge. It just leads to being thinner and thinner and emptier and emptier. So that's the first thing it does. The second thing introspection does is this. It makes us lonely. It empties us. It makes us lonely. This is a really feel-good lecture. You know, sort of pick you up halfway through the day. Um, loneliness for me is a direct consequence of introspection. Deprived of the power to be, which is this first-hand connection's reality, locked into our own internal world, we no longer have the capacity to, to form a true bond of intimacy with another human being, separate from us. And uh, that, that's the problem. Locked into ourselves, we can't deeply connect with other people in a real, meaningful relationship. Now, introspection gives all kinds of possibilities in terms of false intimacies. And false intimacies take place largely through fantasy. So um, a pornographic world is a highly introspective world. Um, and actually the connection between introspection and pornography is often very, very, very strong. But even with another person, if you're relating to them, rather than relating to them as someone separate from you, who have their own identity, you just kind of live your life through them, not acknowledging them as separate from you with their own unique person and character and so forth. You just kind of live your life through them. And often, in doing that, suck the life out of them. It's a type of false intimacy. Um, and of course, we're created for intimacy, so it's something we long for, but it's eluding us. And because it eludes us, we, we remain the lonely subject and often feel very alone. Um, so that's the, the second thing it does. The third thing introduction, uh, introspection does is that it makes us unable to live in the present. I've alluded to this already. The only place that we can ever truly be is in the present. Um, it's the only place where you and I exist concretely. The past is gone, it's over and done with, and we can go to the past in our memory, but it's not reality. It's a picture of reality, or a thought about reality that's over and done with. And we can think a lot about the future, but the future hasn't come yet, and actually the future never comes in terms of where we are as human beings. It's always in the present. Now, 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 now. So it's only in the now that we can deeply connect to the, the real. Um, so to be, to really be as a human being, is to actualize the present moment, to participate what God gives to us as a gift in every present moment. Um, but the introspective person can't do that because the power to be has been deeply damaged by hyper-analysis, um, compulsive thinking, and then lots of activity. And that means we only live in our thoughts. That's all we have. Reality for us is our own head, what's going on inside of our head. And actually, when we do that, we're straying either towards the, the past or towards the future. But we're never really dealing with the present and what's before us now. And uh, that, that, that's a dreadful place to be in, but that's what introspection does can't actually receive the gifts of the present moment because we're just living in our own heads, living in our thoughts. 
Then the fourth thing um, introspection does is that it um, paralyzes us with respect to living with wonder. Living with wonder. We live in a world which is full, full of wonder. Full of brokenness and nastiness and ugliness too. But there is so much in every moment that is full of wonder. Um, And actually, the present is full of that which we can't intellectualize fully. It's, it's too great to be contained simply within a, in a thought. A thought can capture some of it, but there's so much more. And I, I think this is one of the awful things about um, introspection, that we, we can't live with a sense of joy and wonder about the world we live in, because everything has to be contained to the thought. It's all about control, contained to this thought. And it's interesting, at Labrie, we have lots of discussions. People come from all over the world. And I often notice in um, our discussions that people today find it very hard to live with mystery. If you can't explain it totally, it's illegitimate. And that's often a sign of introspection. If there's something which can't be totally figured out intellectually, then it's invalid. But that's the sign that we're not living with wonder, that there are things about reality which actually go beyond the power of intellection, which is why we need poetry. And I would say that I didn't do the science track at university. I flunked science and math. I was one of those artsy-fartsy type guys who studied on that side of the, the divide. But, you know, three cheers for the poets. We, 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 we need the poetic. And we need the poetic because reality can be explained through intellection, but not fully. And there are aspects of reality in the realm of the supernatural that need poetry. So even the Apostle Paul, who's a pretty, pretty, he was a number one intellect, was Paul. But actually he, many times in his writings, when he reaches dimensions of reality in terms of who God is and how he's worked in history, he just leaves all the analytic statements behind and breaks into poetry, doesn't he? Ephesians 1, he gets this just incredible run of a poetic outburst that my English teachers would have killed me for. Run-on sentences, it just makes William Faulkner look, he's a southern writer, it makes him look like a good writer. But that's what Paul had to do. He had to break into poetry. And that's because he had wonder. But the introspective condition doesn't, doesn't really allow for that. And that's a problem. So those are the four things which introspection does for us. All of them deeply, deeply damaging in terms of our human experience. Let me finish with my last question and we'll open it up for some chat amongst ourselves. How do we escape introspection? Um, It's got to be the most depressing lecture you've ever, ever heard. Um, And so it's time to to ask, is there any, any good news And uh, there's no simple answers, actually, to the issue of how we get out of this, because it's so endemic for for modern people. But I just want to talk now about the way out. And it's, for me, one way that has three strands to it. Um, And these three strands are very interconnected. The first is we've got to hear the call to love. The call to love. Because introspection actually is the opposite of love. And it's the opposite of love because in introspection, everything is directed to the self. It's not outer-directed, it's inner-directed. All completely self-referential, which is the opposite of love. Where, by way of contrast, love is outer-directed. That's how love functions. So the call to love which we could turn to dozens of passages in the Bible. The call to love, which is the mark of the Christian, is the call to get out of our heads, to stop over-intellectualizing everything, and to engage with other as other. The other person is someone who's separate from ourselves. It's a love affair with that which is beyond us. And that means opening our eyes and ears to reality. My daily prayer is that, Lord, give me eyes to see and ears to hear so that I can get out of my head and 
live the life of love that you've called me to. And that means standing in the present. Standing in the present and reaching out to those who are in need around us. And rather than introspectively leads to the condition we just want to talk about ourselves or have everything reflected back to us, is taking a real interest in others who are separate from our own existence. And it means living with wonder in terms of all that God has made. It's a love affair with reality. Saying, wow, and it's receiving everything with thanksgiving. And above all, it's the call to love God, who made us, provides for us day by day, who loves us, and calls love Him. The call to love is a call to step out of our heads and to actually engage real. It receives His gifts. So that's the first way out of introspection. It's just a deep commitment to love. And love and introspection are opposites. The, third, the, the second thing here in terms of the second strand of this one way is we've got to hear the call to solitude. The call to solitude and quiet. And the call to solitude is really a check on this activism that I talked about earlier where we're just doing, doing, doing. Never actually resting in the present and receiving God's gifts. I think it was best put by Simon and Garfunkel. You say that dates me, but they're pretty good, you know. When I saw them in concert, there was punk rockers and grannies side by side, swaying. It's fantastic. I've never seen a concert quite like it. And you know, there, there's, you probably don't know it, because I'm aged listen to this stuff. But they got this wonderful song, Slow Down, You Move Too Fast, Gotta Make the Morning Last, Kicking Down the Cobblestones, Looking for Fun and Feeling Groovy. There's a lot of biblical realism in that. Slow down, you move too fast. My wife's always saying, why are you running, Andrew? Just slow down, you move too fast. Gotta make the morning last. Um, and for me, solitude is the place where we can listen attentively to that which is beyond us. I think the power to be starts in the place of quiet. And as for me, one of my daily disciplines, I do it early in the morning, is actually I don't open my Bible and start reading right away. I just stop and I just be quiet. And I just listen to the birds, the dawn chorus. It just gets me out of my head. And I hear the clock ticking away in my study there. And the kids beginning to turn over in bed as they think, oh, it's time for another day at school. And just, it's just listening. And it's an incredibly powerful exercise just to stop and listen to that which is going on outside of us. It just, and that's, you have to be quiet in order to listen. So I don't think we can ever be outer directed until we learn how to stop and listen. And that means we need to be in solitude. So that's the second thing that we need to uh, be committed to. The uh, psalmist in Psalm 46 says that we, we must be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. It's an imperative, actually. It's a command. You must be still in order to know that I am God. The place of stillness is where we are able to engage with ultimate reality in the person of God himself. And then the third strand for me is obedience. You hear the call to love, the call to solitude, and then the call to obedience. Of course, obedience is a bit of a swear word today. It sounds so oppressive and all the rest of it. But the, the and, and it's something Jesus talks about so often, especially in John, John 13 to 17. He's talking about love and obedience as being the same thing. Those who love me are going to obey my law, my command. And the great thing about obedience is that it's a, uh, true obedience is obedience to something which is outside of us. It's not being obedient just to our inner voice and what we feel is right or wrong in any given situation. It's actually being obedient to uh, a way of life which is prescribed by the God who made us and by Jesus Christ. And that's outside of ourselves. That's why I like the Sermon on, uh, sermon on the Mount. You read it and you think, this is bigger than me much bigger than me in terms of what it calls me to. 
And to hear the call to obedience is, is actually to see law as not oppressive. It is oppressive to the introspective at one um, level because actually doesn't fit in with this interior world where we're going to define what's right and wrong. But actually when you see law as something so bigger than me that I, I blend in with, that I bow to, that I submit to, and you see this is actually beautiful. It's not ugly. It's beautiful. It gets you out of your head. It's very, very powerful. And uh, it's, it's why in raising children, it's not oppressive to say, you know, doing what mommy and daddy says is, is, a, is a good thing. It's actually helping them to see that it's, it's a small world to actually just be obedient to your own whims and fancies. It's a big world to say there's a law beyond ourselves, bigger than my head, which God calls me to submit to. And there's joy in actually doing that. So for me, a commitment to love, to solitude, and to obedience is um, a commitment which can lead us out of introspection. And because I feel introspection is so endemic to the modern psyche, if I can put it like that, um, a commitment to follow Christ is really being saved from this, to be saved from the introspective condition, which for me is a mirror of what hell is like. Um, and... I'm not saying that non-Christians can't find ways out of introspection. They can. Healthy living is always going to be against introspection. But the commitment to Christ really lays before us something which can take us beyond this condition and free us from it to engage with reality in all of its fullness and ultimately engage with, with God himself. So that's a little rampage on the introspective condition. Um, as I said in my talk, I don't say this all judgmentally um, as against anyone here. I myself find so many deep introspective tendencies in myself and it's why I'm able to speak about it with a little bit of understanding because I know myself. And I, this part of myself I don't like. And I've known um, encouragements over the last years in becoming more, a little bit more freed from it in terms of my commitment to follow Christ. Right. I've done enough talking. It's time for you guys to start talking. Do you have any questions or comments or... Absolutely. That's where, at the very beginning, it's a good question. At the beginning, I said that the functions of the human heart, the uh, inner life of every individual, there are these three functions which all have outer directedness, and they're all totally legitimate and actually absolutely necessary to engage with reality. So I'm not, for a moment, wanting to pick, uh, paint a picture of being without thinking. Thought is one of the greatest gifts God has given us. I, I love thinking about reality um, in terms of understanding it. And like I said about Olympus, it, it, it determines how we engage with reality. How we think about reality determines how we engage with it. it. The problem is when the two of them turn inward and then that type of thinking is destructive because it crushes the power to be. So when I would say when thinking is outer-directed, and, and, and do it as a response to, to reality. These things are going here. Then the being thing is going to be helpful too. And when you have being, it doesn't mean you stop thinking. But it means that you're 
as you think about reality, you're also engaging with it deeply. And, and you're not just in the thought world. Because my... It's, it's sometimes in a ver- very special occasion and you're, you're aware that you're just... You're not really there. You know, you're there in your body, but you're not there any, anywhere else. You just... You're lost. And it's... That's, that's because it's, it's going in the wrong direction. It's, it's inner, inner focus rather than outer focus. So the healthy human existence God created is for all three of those working very differently from each other, mind, imagination, will, but all of them integrated together to, to give us the deep participatory experience of reality. So long live thought, but it's how we think. And it's what I love about ideas, and I love, I love thinking with others. I'm, I'm not a, I don't think often very well by myself I, when I start to go into my tumble dryer. But the great thing about sharing an idea with someone else, whether it be theology, philosophy, or politics, whatever, is that you're, you're engaged with it. It, it, gets me, it gets the thought here, and suddenly Philip comes back with this, and I come... That's, that's a great way to think. Say here, what's, what's your name? Anna. Anna. What I'm going to say here, you might find quite shocking. I, I think understanding ourselves is important, but I think we make very little progress doing that on our own. Because I don't think it's possible for the subject to know the subject. So I, I'm totally committed to this, and it outrages people. I know you, I just found out your name five seconds ago, I know you at quite a comprehensive level better than you know yourself right now. And you know me better than I know myself. <laughs> She's not sure. <laughs> and I know nothing of your history. I know you're English. Definitely not Northern. Uh, Oh, right. But, but, but I see you as you are. Just the fact that I've seen you. You have never, ever seen yourself before. You've seen representations of yourself, but you have never seen yourself. And for me, I, I love to think of the, the human self, which is a very supernatural dimension of who we are. The way it becomes incarnate and in flesh is actually in our faces. I can just about see the tip of my nose there, but I've never seen my face before. Or as I see your face, a three-dimensional, real engagement with your face, you've never seen it before. They're not. And it's why every time a photograph, a group photograph comes out and you're in it, you always look at yourself first. There's no exception to that. We always look at ourselves first. And... One in a hundred pictures do you say, I think that is me. The rest of me says, that doesn't really look like me. That didn't get the real me. We're, we're often quite surprised at our appearance in a photograph. And we freak out, most of us, I don't know about you, Philip, but uh, when I used to uh, be a pastor and, and Helen was looking after the kids and on a Monday she'd be listening, or a Sunday afternoon, listening to my sermon on a tape and I'd walk into the room and just call, oh, I couldn't stand hearing my own voice. That's not me, is it? So we live with ourselves 24-7, yet we know ourselves so, so poorly. And, and philosophically, I do a number of lectures where I, I, I try to demonstrate this. Far too complex. But to show that the, the, it's impossible for the self to know the self. Which is why endless self-analysis, I don't think, leads to much. And th- that's why the power of a friendship, a significant pr- friendship where someone... Um, I just learned to listen to my wife Helen when she tells me something about myself she's 
invariably absolutely spot on. And I'm so shaken when someone tells me something about myself which I'm convinced is not true, and yet they see me much more clearly. So I would say it's important we know ourselves, but I don't, I don't know how much we can do that on our own. And I would say the type of um, analysis that we're supposed to do, and, and the Bible does say examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, but it's always with a reference point. That is, there's, there's something clearly objective. And as Christians, I'd say we do that self-examination in the presence of Christ who is in us and with us. So it's not introspection, it's in the presence of another. And it's all reference with respect to who he is. And Robert Murray McShane, who's a Scottish divine, as they call him, died when he was 29. He, he said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10,000 at Christ. And I think he got the proportions that are absolutely spot on. He said, for, you're, are you Scottish? Right. Yeah, he said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10,000 at Christ. Yeah. So I am. Um, yeah. Hyper self consciousness, I think, is is so fruitless because I don't think it reveals very much. I see it sometimes when I look at my... I don't keep a regular journal. But you have those moments and you think, this is it, this is who I am, and you write it down. And then two years later, you come to another self-discovery. And you look at the old one and you say, well, which one is true? But if we do it with another, I think, think then we, we have a far better basis for understanding ourselves. Absolutely, but it's in the, in the presence of another, and it's it's their questions which help you. And and I mean, a lot of my work at Libri, I suppose, is a type of counselling. And when you hear um, a very negative statement about from someone about themselves, often you can. I'm ugly. Someone said to me, "I said I'm just so ugly." I said, "I can tell you for a fact, you're not ugly. That is a lie you're telling yourself. It's just not true." That's how they felt, but it wasn't true at all. And I wasn't, that wasn't just nice, Andrew, to be nice to them. It just was not true. Um, so that's the power. That's, I think that's where counseling is so valuable, is that you're doing it in the presence of another. And the, it's why you need someone else, because we can actually uncover a lot of what's really driving us in our inner world on, on our own. think that university offers possibilities for community which when people leave university often they really miss it's they're just in their car traveling to work in the office but not really engaged with people in the office and then come home and they're shattered and often that's a real shock to the system because the dynamic of community isn't there and even if it's a Christian their local church is often not very engaged in terms of the community of the local church well, I think university offers amazing possibilities for really sharing life. It can also be, I traveled down with a guy here, I just dropped him off at Rodi and his sister's there. And he's just started university, he's just so lonely. He's a really sociable guy, but he feels so lonely. He's just being very honest about it. And I felt that my first year at university. I was involved in everything, but when I went back to my room, I just felt so lonely. And so that, that then can lead to a certain kind of introspection too. Christian Union meeting. Union. 
I, I like what you're doing there. I mean, with Jesus, he makes some incredibly strong identity statements. To say I am is huge. Um, but all of his are absolutely right. Whereas my I am statements are almost always off the mark. I am a Libri worker. I am a pastor. What's the problem, isn't it? Actually, because it's not what we are. It's, it's a role we've taken on, but it doesn't define us. Whereas Jesus' I am statements were true. Yeah. And when, I, when I, I, I take a few days out every once in a while to just be really, really quiet, and often I go through the I am exercise, write down what I think I am, and to rediscover actually I'm, I'm not these things. I am what I am in Christ. So Jesus stated what he was very clearly. The psalmist... Um, who talked to himself why are you cast down oh, oh my soul Psalm 42 and 43 I love those psalms but it's interesting he was talking to himself rather than listening to himself and for me introspection is often more about listening to yourself so it just goes on and on this listening exercise we're talking to yourself giving yourself a good kick up the bee sometimes is, is very valuable um, and actually, for me, talking to myself can sometimes shake me out of my introspection. So the distinction between listening to yourself and talking to yourself, I think, is a good one. Um, it's counselors who listen uh, to you and you do the talking. And then your your third example was, well, one of your three was Paul. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's it's lovely. Um, when you get reflections of the Trinitarian life, that it's, it's outer focused again. And so John 1, 1, the Word was with, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I take the view that actually with in the Greek is toward, and the idea of the, the Father and the Son face to face, or one looking at the other, it's outer directed. No. Yeah. That's right. This one over there. Yeah, interesting. 